Okay, so we're going to do something different today, and, um, and we are, so over the next little bit, and I'll give you some background, uh, we're going to teach through some um, just really important people in church history, and I just, I felt like that's what the Lord wanted us to do going into this year, so uh, we're going to take the next few weeks and go over a book, and I'm not going to read, you know, the book to you, I'll, I'll read some of it, but um, teaching out of um, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so we're going to hit some of that today. And then after this, we're going to hit C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. And, uh, and we're going to talk about suffering. And, uh, and so anyway, that's going to be really good. We've, that's something we've never spent you know, a lot of time talking through. And so um, anyway, and then uh, we'll see what the Lord has after that. So that's kind of where we're going to be today. But if you want to jump ahead, you can go to Matthew, um, no, Luke, chapter 5, and, uh, and we'll be there in just a moment. If you're new, welcome. Um, glad that you are here today, everybody online. Um, you should be here today, but uh, but we'll give you a pass. I, I'm contemplating back and forth on whether or not to end live stream for the foreseeable future, but we'll see. Because um, it's time to get in church. COVID's over. COVID's over. Like you know what I'm saying? Like, dang, no more excuses. It's time to get back in church, or um, you know, or just be real. So anyway. Um, but the online thing is about to get on my last nerve. So anyway, I bless you with that. All right. Um, love y'all watching online, but that ain't church. So, all right, here we go. Uh, let, me, let me read some stuff I've been writing, and then we'll, we'll get in. Uh, many people start the new year with a resolution to do something better or to stop doing something in order to be better, right? How many of y'all have a New Year's resolution? What's, what's your New Year's resolution? Hey, hey that's a good one. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. Awesome. So really listen to what I'm about to say. Uh, <laughs> all right, so for most, uh, their resolution is to get in shape, amen, to be better with their finances. Gabrielle, you trying, you trying to get in shape? I feel like you're pretty in shape, but. <laughs> um, to get in shape, to be better with their finances, amen. Some of y'all, you know, uh, to read some books, um, maybe even to read their Bible through in a year. I've heard that one. I've had a dime for every time I heard that one. Almost all resolutions, though, that people make going into a new year die before the first month is over. I think it's somewhere like 95% or something like that. Why? Because everyone wants the results of doing the right thing, but very few want to go through the process that requires something of them in order to experience the results of doing the right thing, right? Everybody wants to be in shape. No one wants to stop eating Chick-fil-A in order to be in shape. And I'm speaking from experience. You know what I'm saying? Um, I've had to do that, not by choice, but by uh, health reasons this week. And all I've eaten this week is egg whites, broccoli, and cauliflower. And I'm pretty sure I've lost 15 pounds this week, um, or at least it feels like it. And that's been forced on me by my doctor. But for those of you that have chosen that, okay, for those of you that have chosen that, it ain't easy. It co- I mean, it costs you something, you know what I'm saying? Especially something that you're really comfortable with living with, okay? Everyone wants to be in shape without going to the gym or eating vegetables. Everybody wants a bigger savings account while still buying $10 Starbucks lattes. Everyone wants the knowledge a book offers without the time consumption of reading the book. Everyone wants the joy of reading their Bible without the 40 plus hours of reading that it takes to read your Bible through. It takes about 40 hours to read through your Bible front to back. 
There is something within, if you read nonstop, there is something within us, especially in a country, which I love, but that has almost everything that it wants, that holds to a fantasy that we can have something of cost or of value without paying the price for that, okay? This is why so many people are hooked on playing the lottery. There's this fantasy world in which a lot of people live in where they spend a $5 bill on a ticket and get millions in return, right? But statistically, the reality is it's much more likely to make a million dollars by going to school, getting a degree, climbing your way up your business, and working hard than it is to spend $5 doing nothing to get $5 million in return or a million in return on a lottery ticket. You know what I'm saying? It's a, it's, you, if you want to earn a million dollars in America, you can earn a million dollars. It's just going to take a lot of work. You know what I'm saying? And so we live in this fantasy world where people think, I'm going to go spend $5 on a ticket, and there's a chance I'm going to get millions of dollars. You know what I'm saying? Because everyone wants millions of dollars without the work that it takes to get something of that value. Anything of value comes at a cost. If what you have costs you nothing, it is by definition cheap. And if it is cheap, it will eventually wear down and break. In the church, people want the accessory to their lives that says, for example, uh, God is my God's my number one, and I'm a I'm a Bible believing Christian, right? Without paying the price of discipleship, and that is the premise of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, that the church has overlaid so much of the Word of God with human ballast burdensome rules and regulations, false hopes and consolations that it has become extremely difficult to make a genuine decision for Christ. Direct quote. The church today is filled with slogans that promise a better life at no cost. Tell me if you've heard these, okay? God is calling you higher. God is promoting you in this season. God qualifies the called. God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. We used to say that a lot in the church I grew up in because nobody wanted to go to seminary, right? And so because nobody wanted to go to seminary, we made up these things. God, God doesn't, he doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Well, where do you think the called get qualified? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, it, but this is what we think. Uh, God has been preparing you for your assignment. God will supply all your needs, which is true. God is making you the head and not the tail. This is your year of more, etc. But all of those lack a necessary ingredient to accessing anything of the depth of God, which is discipleship. Discipleship is a buzzword today. Church, I sit around with pastors all the time that talk about how do we disciple people better, right? Churches everywhere are asking how to disciple people better, but our philosophy is backwards. You and I, we can't make disciples, 
by pouring into people more or providing them more opportunities to be in small groups. Disciples are those who have made the choice to leave everything and follow Jesus. That is a disciple. Then the disciple is able to receive teaching and calling and commissioning and assignment and more, etc. Peter, as we're about to see, could not be the rock of the church without first leaving everything behind that once identified him and following Jesus. Paul could not be the apostle to the Gentiles until he first laid down his pharisaical identity of killing Christians. Levi, or Matthew, could not be considered one of Jesus' twelve without first leaving his tax collector booth behind. Y'all with me? Okay. In our view of discipleship today, for example, we have Peters who go hear Jesus teach when the fish aren't biting. We have Pauls who speak the truth only when they clock out of their normal jobs. We have Matthews who tax collect for Jesus. There is no cost anymore. We have bought into the lie of cheap grace. This has cost us nothing anymore. Right? There is no price to pay anymore. Just be there. I'm, I'll just, I'll just I'll get it when I get it. It's cheap. And today, I want to help you reimagine what costly grace is. So let me read this from, uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, this is on page 43 if you have the book, and mostly I'm saying this for those listening later that want to go back and reference the book. Okay, let me read this. This is what he says. He says, Cheap grace, cheap grace um, means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. So let me back up, and I want to read this to you. I read that first so you can kind of have a mind of what he's saying here. Here's what he says. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap Jack's wares. The sacraments, just communion, baptism, etc., the sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasure from which she showers blessings with generous, hand, generous excuse me, hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it's been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace even be if it were not cheap grace? Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine. I want you to hear this. As a principle or as a system. It means forgiveness of sin proclaimed as a general truth, 
the love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. An intellectual assent to that idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. The church, which holds the correct doctrine of grace, has, it is supposed, ipso facto, a part in that grace. In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts, listen to this, cheap grace, therefore, amounts to a denial of the living word of God. In fact, a denial of the incarnation of the word of God. And this is when he says that. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. The last sentence here is the main idea that Bonhoeffer addresses in this chapter and really throughout the book. The difference between the justification of sin and the justification of the sinner. Okay? Justification is the act of declaring or making someone right in the sight of God. So when I say our sins have been justified, what I'm saying is our sins have been made right in the eyes of God. Okay? That's what that means. According to Bonhoeffer, cheap grace is when we believe our sins are being made right or have been made right, but don't then transition to what it looks like for the sinner, you and I, to be made right. And he's not even calling you and I sinners. He's using this as a way, as a way to speak, okay? Sinner, sin. That's why he's using this language, okay? So you got to take everything with a grain of salt. But what he's saying is, is we have to make the transition from yes, our sins have been forgiven, to now, what does it look like to live a life wherein our sin has been forgiven? Right? So to use the, the money analogy, if you have $10 million in your account, right, but you still live like you are dirt poor, people would call you crazy, and yet, that is what we have done with the grace of God. We have taken grace and said, well, now that my sin is covered, and now that my account is taken care of, I'll just keep living however I want, in whatever way I want, and when I come back to it, I'll come back to it, because praise God, I'm going to heaven when I die. Right? That's cheap. That's cheap. We've spent the past two years talking about what it means that our sin has been made right in the sight of God. So, so just to be clear, humanity's been reconciled to God. They've been forgiven. We've been forgiven. We've been redeemed, and we have been put back to rights. That's the cross. Humanity has been forever reconciled back to God through the cross. Amen. However, this is not a means to an end. We see the gospel narrative as having a direct line from the cross to eternity future. We see the gospel narrative as this is what happened on the cross. Now, what will you do to be in heaven or hell when you die? That is, we preach that the cross is what Jesus did to give us an invitation to spend when we die forever somewhere. But there is an entire life in between 
that which happened at the cross and that which happens in eternity, which is the entirety of what the scriptures talk about. And that's why we've gotten things so backwards. We spend so much time in the church talking about where you go when you die. There's one major issue. You ready? Here we go. 2023, I'm starting off as a heretic already. You ready? There's one major issue. That ain't in here. Well, what are you talking about, Josh? You, you are, let me, let me, okay. You are hard-pressed to find any language of the afterlife heaven in the New Testament. Can you believe that? Right? What about the streets of gold? That's not talking about, it's talking about new creation. That's not talking about, what about the walls of Jasper? What about the gates of Pearl? New creation. And even that is symbolic for stuff. So why am I saying this? I'm not saying that we're not going to go to heaven when we die. I'm saying what the New Testament was focused on was now that our sin and that which kept us from the fullness of God has been determined. What do we do now? That is what is in your pages. If you open up the New Testament and see that's what this is this tells you how far we've gotten. Is even that statement I just made, there was probably something on the inside of you that turned a little weird. Right? What are you talking about? Just because you've been taught something your entire life doesn't mean that is true. I, you know what I'm saying? Just because you've been told something over and over and over and over and over does not mean that it's true. Let's take look at the past two years. How many people have shared something on social media that is crazy? Right? That thousands believe. Believe. That's wrong. Huh? Okay. Uh, here, let me, let me, let's just go through. I won't, I won't even touch COVID or anything. Um, what, Lord, uh, what do we hit? What do we hit? All right, here's one. Um, so I, I saw uh, somebody share this uh, going into Christmas. I, I'm not on social media, by the way. Anymore. My accounts are still active, but I'm not on there. So if you've sent me a message or anything and I haven't responded, that's why I'm not on there. Um, I, this year, I determine everything that I do is going to be smart. And so immediately, of course, the next decision was I'm getting off social media. So, um, so anyway, um, but uh, <laughs> uh, part of that's a little joke, but, um, but most of that's true. So um, anyway, the last thing I saw, one of the last things I saw was a post that thousands had shared about the, uh, the uh, uh, Christmas star that would shine before Christmas, Right. And so I was like, okay, that's cool. Everybody should, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be exciting, okay? That post that somebody shared was from like three years ago, right? That everyone was super excited about that never happened because it was three years ago, right? But everybody shared it and believed it was true. Just because you've been told something doesn't mean that it's true. In fact, with me, just because I told you something, you, you go home and you find out for yourself. And if you disagree with it, then you need to disagree with it. You know what I'm saying? But you go home, do me a, do a little, little, go home and read through your New Testament. And I want you just on a little tally sheet, write about how many times they are referencing something that is happening in this life. And then how many times they are referencing something that is happening when you die. 
And I promise you, you'll find out real quick what the New Testament's talking about. All right, here we go. 2023. If you're new, we love you. <clears throat> this is what 1 Corinthians 6.20 says. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The grace upon which we have believed was given to us at the cost of everything from God. What we have in grace costs God everything. Everything. God did not give us this grace so that we could have a license to sin. God gave us this grace so that we could have a license to finally live. Because if you preach grace, brother, if you preach too much grace, people just see it as a license to sin. And when I hear the grace of God, I don't hear, well, praise God, I can go cheat on my wife. That's amazing. No. When I hear the grace of God, something swells up on the inside of me that says, this cost a lot more than I originally thought. Therefore, I need to reassess the price I've paid for something that is this costly. Why y'all so quiet? The response to big grace, which I call it, is typically apathy. That is, if God paid for everything and I'm going to heaven when I die, I'm good. Didn't Christ pay the price for us? There's no longer a price to even pay, be paid, right? Christ paid it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. All, all to him I owe. That's right. As it relates to sin, he did pay everything as it relates to sin. As it relates to discipleship, however, a price is absolutely required. Here's what I want to I contrast today. Let me pull, the, um, let me pull the, old, the old whiteboard over here real fast, okay? Here's what we have... He, we have thought, we, we think um, our sin being taken care of and discipleship, if I spell this wrong, somebody tell me, is that right? Okay, we think these are the same. We think if your sin is forgiven, then you're a disciple of Jesus, right? We think that if Jesus paid your price, then you're automatically a follower. We think if you repeat a prayer, you're a disciple, Right? If I repeat a prayer and say I'm saved, then I'm a disciple of Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus and your sin being forgiven and you going to heaven forever are not the same thing. They can be, right? But these are not the same thing. Disciple of Jesus is when you say, I leave everything to follow. Your sin being forgiven is something that only Christ could do and he did do, okay? So you repeating a prayer, to be honest with you, doesn't really mean that much unless you leave everything and follow. Your repeated prayer does not forgive your sins. I know that's what we were told, but your repeated prayer doesn't forgive. Your, your sins are forgiven. In fact, uh, in the New Testament, I believe it's in Romans 4 or Galatians 4, but y'all don't quote me on that. I think it's Romans 4. In Romans 4, Paul even says that Christ was reconciling the world, not keeping a record of transgressions before the cross. So you being forgiven is nothing but a decision of God. It's an act of God to reconcile the world back to himself. You being a disciple is absolutely your decision. And what, listen, let me help you. 
Whether or not you decide to be a disciple of Jesus, man, this is so, what I'm about to say is going to be super dangerous. You ready? Whether or not you decide to be a disciple of Jesus doesn't affect whether or not your sins are forgiven. You being a disciple of Jesus determines whether or not you live or you die for the next 70 years until you die and finally make it to glory. So you can spend the rest of your life with your sins being forgiven and absolute bondage and death and decay and anxiety and depression and sickness and all that other stuff. Or you could say, my sin is forgiven. Therefore, I'm going to leave my fishing nets behind and follow a man that will cost me my life. But in the process of it costing me my life, I'll actually discover what it means to truly live. And when you discover what it means to live, you'll look back on the life that you laid down and you won't even be able to call it life anymore because of the life you experience in Christ. Whew. All right, all right, all right. I feel my, I feel my blood pressure rising. Um, that's going to be a joke now. It's just going to be a good joke. My blood pressure's been sky high for months, and now it's got to be a joke or else I'll worry about it. All right. Um, So let me start. Let me read this. This is Bonhoeffer on 45. Check this out. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of it. A man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man or woman must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace, listen to this, because it gives a man the only true life. And of course, Bonhoeffer here, he's an older you know, language person. Man is humanity, okay? So not just males. Let me read that one more time. It is costly because it costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Last part. It is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. I want you to hear this. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, one of my favorite, favorite passages ever. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. It's Jesus. 
Woo, you being forgiven and you being a disciple of Christ are two different things. If Peter had chosen not to follow Jesus, listen, his sin would have still been forgiven. He just would not have been the rock of the church. Him leaving everything to follow was not an issue of his sins being justified, but he himself being justified. Remember what justified means, being made right, okay? So him leaving everything to follow was not an issue of his sin being made right. He did that on the cross, right? Him leaving everything to follow was he himself being made right, which is what he was always designed to be, which is Peter, the apostle of Jesus, who was the rock of the church and ultimately martyred because he refused to lay it down. That's who Peter was not a fisherman, right? So he could have still been a fisherman and his sins be forgiven. He just would have missed out on who he really was. He was not a fisherman. He was the apostle that was the rock of the church. How many people in the church especially have settled for being just a blank when the Lord designed them to be the very thing that's going to call thousands probably, possibly more, out of their bondage and into a life that they themselves have experienced, but they have not experienced it because they refuse to leave their nets. As I've told over and over, your sin being forgiven was only accomplished so that you could be made right on an identity level. Listen, God was aiming at reconciliation through Jesus' death and resurrection. Yet in order to reconcile, he also had to undo that which caused separation, which was sin. God dealing with sin was not why Jesus became incarnate. Jesus became incarnate so that you and I could be justified. And for you and I to be justified, our sin also had to be justified. So he took care of sin in order to do the very thing that he actually longed to do, which is bring us back to right. But to bring us back to right, the thing that made us wrong had to be removed, which is sin. So Jesus is not God's aim at sin. Jesus is God's call home to the humanity that had settled for a life of sin. So he removed our choice off the table and said, now your only choice is to come home. So you could either live homeless or you could come home. The choice is yours. The only thing that's required of you is to leave everything that used to define you behind. And when you do that, you'll inherit life to the full. Let me, let me, I, I, got, I got a couple more passages. This is the last couple. Let me, y'all good? I know this is a little different, um, but it's good. Bonhoeffer. Uh, he, was, he was martyred by Hitler. Um, he, was, he was in a gas chamber. So, so he believed what he said, okay? Um, let, me, let me read this. If grace, if grace is God's answer, the gift of Christian life, then we cannot for a moment dispense with following Christ. But if grace is the data for my Christian life, it means that I set out to live the Christian life in a world with all my sin justified beforehand. I can go and I can sin as much as I like, 
and rely on this grace to forgive me. For after all, the world is justified in principle by grace. I can therefore cling to my uh, bourgeois, he uses the French word here, secular existence and remain as I was before, but with the added assurance that the grace of God will cover me. It is under the influence of this kind of grace that the world has been made Christian. But at the cost of secularizing the Christian religion as never before, the antithesis between the Christian life and the life of bourgeois respectability is at an end. The Christian life comes to mean nothing more than living in the world and as the world in being no different from the world. In fact, in being prohibited from being different from the world for the sake of grace. The upshot of it all is that my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on a Sunday morning and go to church to be assured that my sins are actually all forgiven. I need no longer to try follow Christ for cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship, which true discipleship must loathe and detest, has freed me from that. Grace as the data for our calculations means grace at the cheapest price, but grace as the answer to the sum means costly grace. It is terrifying to realize what use can be made of a genuine evangelical doctrine. In both cases, cheap and costly grace, in both cases, we have the identical formula, which is justification by faith alone. Yet the misuse of the formula leads to the complete destruction of its very essence. At the end of a life spent in the pursuit of knowledge, a man, he quotes, Faust, has to confess, I now do see that we can know nothing. And this is what, this is what Bonhoeffer's saying here. He's saying that, if what we say and what we teach today in modern church, and this is for him, modern church, for us, obviously, it's way deeper. If what we profess is grace today, then all it is is you and me being forgiven and we can go about our lives. And every now and then, we come back to church on a Sunday morning for an hour to be reassured that our sins are actually still just forgiven. And once we receive that reassurance, we just go right back into the world and nothing looks different and nothing has changed and we're still in the same bondage. We're still dealing with the same junk. We're still walking the same path. We're still dealing with the same people. We're still dealing with the same jobs, right? Still dealing with the same mindset. But, but after a month or two, we crawl back into the church, reassured of our grace, and we go right back into our lives. Did you know um, that on average, I'm using a lot of statistics today, um, on average, people spend 20 times more time watching Netflix than going to church in a year? 20 times the amount of time that churchgoers spend watching Netflix over going to church. 
And, and that's assuming you go to church every week. So for, for the reality, which is once every two months, I don't know, 200 times more? And then we wonder why our world looks like it does. And our answer to that has been Jesus' return. Return to what? Let me, if Jesus returned, hmm, I think we'd find the Jesus that throws tables a lot more than we would find the Jesus that says, come, come to me. No, come to me. But you know what I'm saying? Our answer to everything is the, either the rapture or, well, that's it. That's basically it. That's it. That's our, our answer for everything is, well, he must be coming soon. Huh? Coming to what? Coming for what bride? Did you know that the New Testament, he's coming back for a pure and spotless bride? Did you know that he is going to return for a pure and spotless bride? And if this is pure and spotless, Lord, help us. No, he's, I believe one of the reasons that Jesus hasn't returned yet is because he, what would he return to? He would return to a handful who were hidden in the middle of nowhere that have made the decision to go against the grain that everybody else calls crazy. That's about it. You know what I'm saying? And everybody else, oh, they'd sure make it to heaven. But let me tell you something. Who cares if you make it to heaven if you don't first experience what heaven is like in this life here and now? Who cares? Heaven's going to be amazing. Heaven's going to be amazing. Even heaven is not eternal. New creation is. See, I can't wait to go to heaven to be with Jesus forever. No, heaven is nothing but a holding place for that which will take place here in the creation when the dead in Christ rise. So all of our loved ones that have gone before us there is no, for me at least, maybe for you, there is no consolation for me to think that they're floating around on a cloud somewhere a billion light years away in a place called heaven that hopefully I get to when I die. That offers me no consolation whatsoever. In fact, it makes it worse. But if you tell me that my loved ones, there's coming a day soon and very soon, there's coming a day when my loved ones get up out of their grave that the Lord puts flesh back on their bones and breath back in their bodies and they live again, then there's hope. And that is the hope. That's why the disciples were so eager to go to martyrdom, not because they thought, well, I'm gonna float away one day. No, they were absolutely gonna be with Jesus, but because they knew there's going to come a day when Christ puts life back into my body and you do not have the final say over me, those who persecute me. Right? I, that's hope. What we do matters. The decisions that you make matter. One generation's compromise is absolutely the next generation's captivity. I wish that message had been preached about three generations ago because now we're in captivity. We're no longer in compromise. We're now in captivity. And now we've got to determine, now that we are in exile, now that we're in captivity, how on earth are we getting back home? And the path back home is to leave everything and 
follow. That doesn't mean you quit your job. I'm not talking about, okay? Then you go home and quit your job and come and spend forever at the church. I won't give you a key. You know what I'm saying? That's not what we're doing, okay? That doesn't mean you quit your job and you break up with all your relationships. Some of you, you might need to break up with, I don't know, you know. Um, the ones that I know of in here don't need to, but, you know, some of y'all watching might. Um, that doesn't mean you go home and you drain your bank account and give it to the church, although, I mean, you know, we, we accept checks. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> what it means is, is you lay down everything that you process your life through and now process your life through one filter, and that is Christ Jesus, period. So if what you have decided to do with your life doesn't draw you closer to the one you're following, there's a good chance that is not what you need to do with your life. If you're a disciple, I mean, if you're just one whose sins are forgiven and you just wanna live the rest of your life in bondage, chase it, go right, I mean, go ahead. Chase every, chase every career, chase every location, chase every relationship, chase every opportunity, everything that you could come up with, chase it. And I promise you, you're going to get to the end of it, and you're going to realize that all of it was for absolutely nothing. That's why there are people, like we say all the time, in Hollywood making millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars on so many antidepressants, they can't even think straight. How could you be depressed and be a millionaire? Because money was never what your life was designed to be aimed at. It was Jesus. And if Jesus gives you money, amen. And if Jesus does it, amen. Because you can get him at one cost, and that is your life. And that's it. It costs you everything to inherit everything. Whew. All right. All right. Our culture has a habit of using the grace of God. Lord, I haven't even gotten to Luke. Our culture has a habit of using the grace of, I'm almost there though, the grace of God to continue in bondage. Listen, bondage is comfortable. We're used to it. Yet before Christ, bondage carried with it the threat of death. Listen, before Christ, the bondage of sin carried with it the threat of death. Death is the thing that he came to undo. Before death was undone, sin carried with it the future of death, right? It was the threat of death. When Christ enters the story, death is eliminated. And with it, the threat of our bondage is eliminated because there is no more death waiting for us. It's the perfect situation, right? The consequences are removed. We can keep what is comfortable and still be in right standing with God. But your right standing was not put in place as the end of the story, but the beginning of the story. Salvation wasn't to determine your place in heaven. Salvation and your place in heaven was put in place to determine your access to life now. And by life, I mean Zoe life. And by Zoe life, I mean God's own life, okay? So look at Peter here. Peter was called twice, and I'm at the end. I saved the scripture for the end, so y'all don't worry. Promise, almost done. Peter was called by God, by Jesus, twice. In the same place, doing the same thing. One was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the other was at the end, 
even, or excuse me, was at the end, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So one was at the beginning, one was at the end of the ministry. Let me read what happens at the beginning, and then I'll read what happens at the end, and I want you to hear if you can see some similarities, all right? Luke 5, uh, starting in verse 1, a few verses. Uh, Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. Okay, so this is, this is Galilee. Um, there's many different names that Galilee goes by in the Gospels, but this is Galilee. This is one of the um, alternate names. Um, anyway, uh, the fishermen had gone out of, or excuse me, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, which would be Peter, and asked him to put out a little way from shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, listen, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. We have worked all night long, have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat that came and helped them. They came and filled both boats, and they began to sink. But when Peter, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, who would be Peter, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed. Okay? So, here's what happens. They're fishing. They're on the Sea of Galilee. They catch no fish. Jesus tells them where to cast their nets. They catch a ton of fish after listening, and they leave fishing to follow Jesus. Should I write that down, or y'all got it? Y'all got it. Okay. Fishing, Sea of Galilee, catch no fish. Jesus tells them where to catch. They catch a ton. They leave everything to follow Jesus. Now, go to John 21, and this is the end of the story. The end of the story. After the death, after the resurrection of Jesus. After Peter has denied Jesus three times as well. Okay? Uh, John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Y'all find me as you turn there when you get there. It's only... Um, a few pages over. Verse one. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. This is again, Galilee. So same place. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel, Canaan, and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Back fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat But that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have caught no fish, have you? You almost almost get the feeling Jesus is trying to say like, you know, do you remember? Remember when this happened? You caught no fish, right? They answered no. Six, he said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, this John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. 
John was present in the Luke 5 situation, okay? John and James, brothers, sons of Zebedee, they were present. So, of course, when Jesus says this, John, whoa, we know who that is, okay? When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked. No one knows why. No one understands. Is that just the, the weird? I, so John, this is John's gospel, right? And, uh, and you'll see, I'm not going to read it, but at the end of this story, uh, Peter has kind of a weird thing with John where he says, what about him? And Jesus is like, well, if I want him to live forever, who, what do you care? You know, that type of thing. And uh, so I, I'm just, I don't know, I'm wondering if John, as he's finishing this, is just like, Peter was naked, you know. Um, maybe, you know. So anyway, uh, last part. He put on some clothes, verse 8. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about 100 yards off. When you hear this, it's going to blow your mind. Ready? When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there. Fish were on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring me some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there, or excuse me, yeah, and though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come now, I have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and, and uh, took the bread, gave it to them, did the same with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, 15. Check this out. Very familiar, but not really. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than what? I think the fish, but, you know. Do you love me more than fishing? Now, why is that significant? Because John or, uh, uh, Peter is a fisher. Do you love me more than what you used to be? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time... He said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hand and someone will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death that he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. Now, here's what's interesting. There's a couple of major differences in this second encounter between Peter and Jesus than the first. Uh, number one. Peter had just denied Jesus three times, okay? So after Jesus' death, they go back to the life that they had before, which was fishing, okay? This signals that they had probably accepted that they might have been wrong to follow Jesus, that maybe he was not the Messiah. Now, why would they think that? Because hopefully, if you know this, uh, if you've been here a while, you probably know this, but um, all the Jews were looking for a Messiah to come and, and essentially kill all the Romans so that they could get their sovereignty back over Israel, right? And so when Jesus becomes the Messiah, or they, to them, you know, starts to get language of Messiah going around Jesus, um, in their minds, it's uh, he's going to take care of the Romans, not that the Romans are going to take care of him. So when they see Jesus being led up a hill 
by Romans being nailed to a cross and dying at the hands of Romans, anyone who followed Jesus, including the disciples, mostly believed we were wrong. And, and there's a good chance that's why Peter denied Jesus so easily was because he had probably started to doubt maybe this wasn't the one. I mean, I know he said he had to do this, but like, would the Messiah of Israel really be killed by a bunch of Romans? Because if Peter says, oh yeah, I followed him, guess what Peter's gonna do? Be crucified, you know what I'm saying? So essentially what Peter is saying in the denial is, I'm not sure if that is worth my life anymore. Because I don't even know if he is who he said he was. I mean, I saw all the miracles, but he's being killed. Right? So he had just denied Jesus three times, and he goes back to fishing. They went back because things did not look like what they believed they would. I'm almost done. Just stick with me. I know. I know. Just stick with me. However, this time when Jesus shows up, he doesn't just ask Peter to follow like the first. He asked Peter, do you love me? Now, here's what's even more interesting. If you read this in the Greek, there are two different words for love that are being used back and forth. You ready for this? The first two times Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, there's, it's the Greek word agapeo, which is from agape, which means to prefer. It's the highest love, okay? So he's saying, Peter, do you prefer me above anything else? Which is exactly why and when he says, um, do you love me more than these? Okay, it's, it's a, do you prefer me, right? The first two times. Now, here's what's interesting. The love that Peter uses in response every time is philean, or from philo, which is a lesser type of love or the love you might have for a friend. Peter, do you prefer me? And Peter says, you know I, you know I love you. And you, no, no, no. Do, do you love me? Oh, man, of course, man. Of course I love you. Okay, so Jesus is asking Peter to prefer. Peter is stopping short of preferring and simply settling for, well, yeah. Jesus is asking for something of cost. Peter, up until the point of the end, is offering something that really doesn't cost a lot. Here's what's really interesting, though. The third time that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Jesus changes and uses the same word that Peter has been using up until that point. It's re I mean, really, really interesting. But here's what's crazy. After the third time, this is what it says, okay? He says, do you love me? And it says, Peter felt hurt or that Peter was grieved at this. Now, reading this, you could, and you wouldn't necessarily be wrong, 
But you could assume that Peter is grieved because Jesus had to ask him three times. Here's what I want to offer you. Could it be that the third time, are you ready for this? The first two times Jesus says, do you, do you love me? Agape, highest love, do you prefer me? And Peter says, well, yeah, you know, you're my friend. Yeah, of course. You're my number one, you know? And then the third time, Jesus looks at Peter and says, yeah, but do you even love me like that? And Peter is grieved. Again, I believe the reason Peter is grieved is because in that moment, he felt the weight of not preferring and settling for a lesser love. And Jesus comes to him and he says, are you even sure that you got that for me? Here's how it play out today. You and I have been called to follow Jesus. That's what our sin being taken care of was an invitation into, which is to follow Jesus, right? So you and I have been called to follow Jesus. What a lot of us have settled for is God is my number one. Uh, You know, I love Jesus. I'll throw some money at it here and there. I'll be there every now and then. I'll get involved when I can, you know, whatever, right? We've given him a Philean love. And I believe what Jesus is here to say is, do you even have that? God, God's my number one. Am I your number one? Like, I've, I've called you to this, but let's talk about what you've settled for. Do you even have what you've settled for? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I've called you to follow But do you even love it all? And Peter is grieved. You might even be able to say in this that he might have been convicted. He's grieved. And this is what he says. You know everything. And you know that I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. But then he says this. When you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt, go wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you don't want to go. And he said this to indicate the kind of death that would glorify God. He's saying... If this is true, we'll see. There's going to come a day where this will cost you your life. And if that day comes, it will be proven that, yes, you do love me. Jesus' love for Peter was not contingent on what Peter did with it. He loved Peter. But Peter, being who he was designed to be, was absolutely contingent on what he did with the love of God. Is that not, see, you don't get that in the English. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. There's a lot more going on there. What's happening here? The first call to Peter at the beginning of Jesus' ministry was a call to follow. We might even say it was a call to trust or believe. But the second call that ultimately defined Peter was a call to prefer, to offer the highest love of all that would cost him his life. The first call, Peter left his fishing nets to follow Jesus. The second call, Peter left his life to follow Jesus. That is costly grace. Isaiah, you can come up here. That is costly grace. It is a grace that costs you a price. It is the pearl in the field that you sell everything, the treasure, excuse me, in the field that you sell everything to get. I'm going to end with this, last page. 
This is what Bonhoeffer says about Peter. The new situation for Peter and Levi and the others. But the new situation must be created in which it is possible to believe on Jesus as God incarnate. That it is impossible, excuse me, that is the impossible situation in which everything is staked solely on the word of Jesus. Peter had to leave the ship and risk his life on the sea in order to learn both his own weakness and the almighty power of his Lord. If Peter had not taken the risk, he would have never learned the meaning of faith before he can believe the utterly impossible and ethical, excuse me, ethically irresponsible situation on the waves of the sea must be displayed. The road to faith passes through obedience to the call of Jesus unless a definite step is demanded the call vanishes into thin air, and if men imagine that they can follow Jesus without taking this step, they are deluding themselves like fanatics. The only way for you and I to discover what faith is, is for Jesus to allow us to be put in a situation where we have to leave something behind to follow. And maybe some of you are in that situation right now. Like maybe some of you are wondering why on earth is the thing that is happening in my life happening? Could it be that the Lord is placing you at the edge of your boat that you've been comfortable in and saying, I need you to just take a step off, come find me on the shore and let me tell you what I really think. And let me teach you what you really think. And let me transform you into who you were supposed to be all along. You are not, Peter, the one who denies and is doubtful and fishes. You are the one on whom I will build everything on. So, some of you have wondered why things have played out this past year like they played out. It's not because God has been not faithful it's not because God has forgotten. It's not because God has changed his mind about you. Could it be that it's the faithfulness of God at work to get you to take a step that you never would have taken had you not been placed in the chaos of the ocean with two options, go back to the boat or go to the shore, leave the boat behind and let it drown in order to find life to the full? The question for you today is, have you purchased cheap grace? Or have you purchased costly grace? What profit does costly grace give you over cheap grace? What's the difference, you might ask? Costly grace, this is the end, calls you to follow Jesus Christ. And where is Jesus going? Into new creation, life to the full, resurrection, eternal life. When I talk about laying down your life, you might hear that as a negative thing. Something that you would not be willing to do just on your own. Laying down your life might sound like something that is really not what you want to do. But you're hearing everything wrong if that's the case. 
laying down your life is for the purpose of picking up his life. The call is not for you to lay everything down and then go about empty. The call is for you to simply let go of what's in your hands so that he can fill you with what you were supposed to be full of all along. The only thing keeping you from being full of him is what you are currently holding in your hands, which means all you've got to do is just let it go. Costly grace calls you to follow Jesus Christ. By picking up his life, you are discovering that what you once called life was really death, and maybe what you once called death was really life. Cheap grace is using the costly price of God as an equation to keep living dead, broken, and suffering. Cheap grace sees the price Jesus paid as the end. Costly grace sees the price Jesus paid in the subsequent invitation to die to the old as the beginning. Which have you purchased? You should bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to think about it for a minute. Like, what, what grace have you purchased? What gospel have you purchased? Is it the one that cost you nothing? Or is it the one that cost you everything? Is it the gospel that says your sin is forgiven? Or is it the gospel that says your sin is forgiving, forgiven, now live? If you and I easily, keep your head bowed, eye closed. I want to just ask you. If, if you and I easily let, for example, things get in the way of our involvement and presence with the body of Christ, that's cheap. I mean, if we come to observe someone else like me or Isaiah or Matt or anybody else, if you come to just observe somebody else burn, not feeling the calling to play a part in the corporate burning of the church, that is cheap. If we have to, I mean, I know I'm stepping on a little bit of toes, but if we have to be begged to give and even then don't even give the bare minimum of 10% to the Lord, and even then, don't even give it consistent. And even then, don't give it first. As the first fruits of what we have, it is cheap. If we willingly lay down the place where we are coming alive for something the world has to offer at the expense of the place where we are coming alive, it is cheap. And I don't say that to offend anybody. I don't say that to make anybody mad. I say that as your shepherd that is called to lead you to the shepherd who is life, which John says is the word, Jesus Christ. Laying down your false life to follow him is gaining life. However, last part, if you and I easily and often reject things that get in the way of our involvement with the bride of Christ, we have costly grace. If we come with a heart to burn with the love for the one we are joined to with the body of Christ together, we have costly grace. If we give sacrificially the best and first of what we have to the Lord, believing 
that he is the one who supplies, we have costly grace. If we willingly lay down anything that comes in the way of us being joined to the place we are coming alive, we have costly grace. This is not a full list. These are simply some examples to get us thinking about what grace have we purchased. What grace have you paid for? What price have you paid for what you believe? Has it cost you anything? Because if I'm being honest with you, it has cost us everything. It cost him everything. Romans 8, 32. He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Let me ask you this question while your heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Um, is there anyone in the room that I could pray over uh, that you would say, I, 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 need to, I need to do something in my life to get access to this costly, costly grace? Um, would you just slip your hand up so I could pray over you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. You can put your hands down. God, I pray over every person in this room. Lord, I pray, myself included, I pray over all of us that we are, we are tapping into what we were, I believe, designed to tap into from the very beginning. You, you are Jehovah sneaky. That's what Bill Johnson says. You like to sneak stuff on us. And this is one of those things. All along, I believe that us determining what the incarnation was really about was all about atonement and reconciliation. And what I'm starting to see is you refined within us atonement and reconciliation for the purposes of inviting us to leave everything and follow. And so God, I personally, and everyone that raised their hands and us as a church, we, we say yes to costly grace. We say yes to what might cost us our lives. And that might not in America, thank God yet, actually mean we have to be killed for this. I hope it never comes to that. So, so we're not on the, we're not, you know, threatened to be martyred. But what career decisions, what relationship, what financial decisions, what time management decisions do we need to make that will absolutely be costly? Absolutely be costly so that we can inherit the thing that we were actually made to inherit. I pray that you would give us the strength. See, it's easy. It's easy to be excited about that in this room when we're talking about it. What happens when you go home and cheap grace starts to whisper in your ear again? We've got to learn to heed the call of what is costly. I want, I want us to buy into another version of the prosperity gospel. Not the one where you give your money and you get millions in return, but the one where you give your life and you get an extravagant life in return. Jesus said this. He said, with the measure that you use, it shall be measured unto you. With the measure 
that you use, it shall be measured unto you. And so, God, I pray that we will be people that are willing to pay a high price for something of high value. Lord only knows you did that. We love you in this place, in your name, amen.